open up your chest and you learn how to feel A big, bleeding heart go dump, dump, dump And a big old love, that's how you overcome Life slip, come down, now to keep it real Open up your chest and you learn how to feel A big, bleeding heart go dump, dump, dump And a big old love, that's how you overcome Tick, tick, we wishing Ladies and gentlemen, you're tuned in to Glory Podcast. It's your boy, Monk. If you've been listening for a minute or listen to the end of this podcast, if it's your first time, and then go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It helps increase the visibility. If you listen on Spotify, give us a follow there and then connect with us on Instagram. We're at Glory on Instagram. You can hit me up on Instagram. That's XXMONKXX. You can also send us an email for a guest request, or if you want to get me on a track, that's uh, music at gmail.com. All right, my guest today, I call him the Michael Jordan of teaching about identity. It's Bill Vanderbush, heavy hitter. So Bill Vanderbush, he's been a pastor for over 25 years. Bill grew up on the mission field. He traveled all over the world and saw thousands impact by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Bill and his wife, Tracy, Tracy currently travel. They speak in conferences and churches around the world. And Bill's passion is to introduce people to the resurrection power of Jesus Christ, who saves, heals, and sets us free. Bill enjoys empowering others to invade the impossible and Bill and Tracy, they currently live in Orlando, Florida, and they have an itinerary that's full, and they travel all around the United States and the world for a big portion of the year. You can check all of his stuff out on BillVanderbush.com. He's got more hustles going on than I could even begin to describe right here, but get out your notepad. You're going to want to listen to this four, five, six, seven, eight times. I had three pages of notes just sitting there talking to him. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Get on your listening ears. This episode with Bill Vanderbush. All right. Recording in progress. That's um, my indication that we're recording. So I'm here live with Bill Vanderbush, and we're about to go on a most excellent adventure. Uh, <laughs> all right. So, Bill, what's up, man? Man, it's good to see you, Matt. I'm loving that background. That's tripping me out. This it's like a dream I had my whole life. I think it's my spirit animal, <laughs> the kitten, unicorn, butterfly, rainbow um, pattern you know, edition. If if somebody would have said what's Matt Monk's spirit animal, that's exact. That's the exact thing right there that would have been in my head. Except it would have been underwater. Oh, that that's good because um. A friend of mine used to always tell me, he's like, he's like, you know, like if we're really like starseed alien type of people, he's like, I think you would originally be from a, an aquatic planet. So that tracks. I've got to chase. I wonder if Ancestry.com is able to trace that lineage. We all need friends like that. Yeah. Yeah, we do. No. So when I started doing these podcasts, I totally forgot that this was my background because like last year, like so much of my work was Zoom meetings. And I was like, what's something that would be like totally disarming for people? 
sitting in these work meetings, you know, all day. And I was like, okay, this rainbow unicorn kitty um, sounds awesome. <laughs> then I forgot and I hopped on a podcast with somebody and I was like, oh, okay, I'm just going to leave it up there. So it's, <laughs> it's a good time. It works. It works. Yeah, yeah man. So um, uh, getting into it. Oh, so let's say um, you've got a crowd of, of anxious or slightly hostile individuals you're giving a talk, you're giving a speech, and you have to kind of ease the tension in the room. What's what what joke are you going with to ease the tension in that room? <laughs> okay. Wow. A joke. Um at a car dealership the other day, and a guy says to me, This car will seat five people comfortably with no problems and i said where am i gonna find five people with no problems no it's a bad joke. <laughs> bad joke oh that's great when I, the one i used to tell my kids all the time was was uh especially when we'd sit down to dinner i'd say did you guys did you guys know that bruce lee had a vegetarian brother Brocco lee <laughs> i'm, I'm using terrible. that one Brocco lee well, actually, right now, I'd probably just tell a story. Like the other day, I I, uh, I just got back from all these doing all these meetings in Minnesota, and this pastor said he goes uh, in Minneapolis. He says I had this thing happen the other day where this lady uh, she gets up in church and she was going to say, "If we don't start praying and fasting more, God's going to come in and write Ichabod all over this church." Right? She literally on Sunday morning gets up and and says, "True story." She says, "If we don't start praying and fasting more, God's going to write Michelob all over this church." <laughs> wow! I was like, I was like is that going to be like in blinking neon uh, lettering? Yeah, my Probably grow the church. I'm like that. That doesn't sound half bad. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like a birthday party I was at like last weekend. <laughs> God's oh. going to come in and write Michelob all over Mich the church. He's going to write Michelob. Oh man, that's good. <laughs> That's good. So is this ultra or is this the Michelob 64 low carb? <laughs> that's Yeah, it's great. I, I think about that. You don't want a low carb church, right? No, no. Um, and then be ultra. If, yeah. And then if God's writing Michelob all over the church, do, um, do we get like that sponsorship money? Is it like one of those deals, you know, when the, um, like the Orlando magic signed a deal with Coke and they have the Coke on all their, um, other logos and do we get that seed money from Nicolo? <laughs> That's great. Uh, I don't know. These are, these are the things that keep me up at night. <laughs> um, so, um, what do you, what do you got going on now, man? Um, I know, well, I'll lead, I'll lead it off of this. I was listening to the reckless grace podcast. So oh, good. I'm glad yeah. you got a chance to listen to that. Yeah. You, so you've got that going on and you're still doing faith mountain ministries yeah faith mountain is kind of a bible so, study podcast bible, so, okay you know but the bible study podcast i i mean i love it i i love doing that stuff but you know if i've got a if i've got a series of meetings going on in churches or whatever like it was a pastor if i said hey i'm gonna be doing a topical study on you know on how to cast out demons or something like that man people mm -hmm. would come out to that all day long but if i say we're gonna just get and get into the scriptures and 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 learn how to study the bible you know, you'll get, you'll get a fraction of the crowd. And to me, yeah. that's the most important thing right now is having a conversation with a friend yesterday about this. It's like, it's, 
the, the amount of biblical illiteracy I run into uh, in, in churches is remarkable. And it's not that people don't have a value for the things of God. Or they don't have a value for, for, for the gospel. It's just, they just don't have a grounding and a rooting in the scriptures. And so I see a lot of people like, in a sense, tearing down the, 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 um, the entire idea of the authority of scripture uh, historically, you know, trying to tear it down. And, and when I, and when they do that, it's almost like you remove the one foundational tangible thing that we can all kind of anchor into on some level. Yeah. And, um, uh, yeah. So I just, I feel like these days, you know, I really want to keep that Bible study element. So I made that separate from the reckless grace podcast, which is just storytelling. Although the last okay. one is a, is a pretty solid Bible study. Yeah. Um, that's good. So I think I listened to the first episode a couple of days ago and mm-hmm. it kind of relates to the first question I'm going to ask you about, but uh, just getting into that, would you say from like the Bible study aspect, some of the stuff that you're seeing, would you say like people just don't know how to study or how to approach reading their Bibles or, or kind of get <clears throat> dig into that a little bit? Cause it's interesting. Cause it's something like I grew up like, hardcore church of Christ. Like you read your Bible, you read it every day. You like, I think I was maybe like nine or 10 years old and I'd read the whole thing cover to cover already. And I had like whole chapters memorized because we right. they just made us do it, made us do it, made us do it. So I guess I'm curious kind of from your experience, like what you see in terms of like biblical illiteracy and like, how do we approach that? Yeah, well, you know, here's the thing to me with the Bible is is if the Bible was easily understood as a cut and dried document that we could all look at, see exactly the same way and agree upon, then we wouldn't have the divisions we've had for the last 2000 years. So so from my perspective, and I had the same thing growing up, I mean, the Bible was kind of a part of our DNA in our household. My dad played it. Alexander Scurby reading the Bible on, on cassette pretty much constantly, you know, everywhere we went. And, um, and it's just, he just had this value for the scriptures. So I grew up uh, learning less of the technicalities of chapter and verse and more the narrative of the story, yeah, the context of things. And, and, uh, and I came to realize, I mean, I guess, you know, in 48 years, I've, I've come to realize that uh, the Bible is, is, one huge question from God to man. And that is the question that Jesus asked the disciples. And that is, who do you say that I am? And because that's typically what we're doing with the Bible. One of the things we do, I think when we approach the Bible is how do we live? And then the other one is who is God, you know? Mm -hmm. And so uh, we still disagree on who God is. And I think the reason for that is because God has in the scriptures given us such a wide, uh, a wide menu of options to choose from in terms of how do we see his character? Yeah. You know, is he filled with judgment and wrath or is God love a consuming fire of passionate love that keeps no record of wrongs? I Means like you can prove both of those things from the scriptures. And is it either or is it both and? And then, and then to, to settle on one over the other, you know, um, if, if I settle on, if I settle on God is, you know, he's all grace and, and the love of God um, uh, completely uh, eradicates all trans, uh, transgression from my account. Second uh, Corinthians five, God yeah. was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting our transgressions against us. If I say, OK, that's that's the that's who God is. 
um, then if I got somebody over here that says, you know, uh, no, God is Hebrews 12, uh, God, the judge of all, you know, I look at that and I go, okay, Hebrews 12, 21, God is judge of all. Mm-hmm. Um, but then I look at John five twenty two, the father judges no one. Okay. What do I do with those things? Are they contradictions? No, they're tensions. And, and when I look at the tensions in scripture, I've got to ask myself, okay, now it's, it's now in, in my lap to come to some sort of determination as to who I see him to be. And not that I'm making him anything. It's not that I create him in my image. And certainly it's not that I define him, but I do get the choice to define my perspective of him. And, and that determines, I think, the, the relationship that I have with him. So, and as I saw God as, I say, I would say my younger days when I saw God as judge, because all I could see was my own sin, yeah. sinfulness, all that stuff. And I thought, oh man, God is God is the judge. He's the corrector. He's the you know punisher, whatever you want to say, or, you know, wrath-filled punisher that is coming down to you know take take and, and turn my life right. Then um, my relationship with God was much more uh, reverent. Let's say like that. Yeah. Uh, so I understand the people who carry tremendous awe and reverence for God, but as my relationship with God has come to to to. I would say evolved to a perspective of that his righteousness is more powerful than my sinfulness, that his grace can uh, overcome uh, his grace to save me um, can overpower my ability to be lost that, you know, things like that. Uh, Then I suddenly, I suddenly realized that reverence takes on an air of intimacy. And I think that's where it's, it's come from, you know, God is King and judge to Abba father you know, the sonship yeah. aspect of it becomes a little bit more real to me. Having gone through that spectrum of, of perspective, though, it keeps me from judging people on the other side of things. So the Bible, though, is the thing that actually informs that perspective to me. It, it gives me truths and truer truths and even truer truths. And to me, the highest form, um, the highest form of truth of the revelation of God, uh, what Paul wrote about, is, uh, you know, love trumps everything. Uh, yeah. So to see God as, as love, uh, uh, first and foremost, is, I mean, I, I can't, once I see that, I can't unsee it. Mm-hmm. And, and yet, I can't force people around me to see it. But I know this, I, th- I know that they're not going to find it just simply by their own experience or standing on their own head or understanding as a pedestal of um, something to lean on in terms of belief about who he is to build the relationship. It has to be birthed uh, in, in the council of the scripture. There's something about that, that wisdom and counsel that actually unveils him. It doesn't confine him, but it does unveil him. So scripture gives us a launching pad to have a, a relationship with God. But I know if somebody comes to me and says, you know, um, somebody says, Matt, I, I think, uh, I think God's like this, or I think God's like that. If, if I don't have, if I don't have a rooting and a grounding, in the Bible to anchor into, uh, then, then I'm, I'm tossed about, you know, I'm, I don't know what to believe. Somebody else with greater knowledge comes in and, you know, and, and I, and I've got no, I got no, no ground to stand on. So the Bible becomes that point of, of anchoring for me to, to answer the question that God asks, who do you say that I am? And, and what I've figured out also is as I 
come to an understanding of his nature and his character, it also begins to define me a little bit more because I realize I'm made in his image and likeness. So if I see God as judgmental and if I see God as condescending, then I end up um, reflecting, you know, the, the reality that I uh, perceive in terms of what I'm focusing, the aspect of his nature that I'm Mm -hmm. focusing on. But when, when I've come to see myself as son and see him as father, uh, and, and realize there's no distance and separation between God and me because of what Christ did. Wow. You know, now, now the aspect of his nature is love overwhelms me and overcomes my judgment. So then I'm, I, I have no room in my life for judgment and offense and all that, all that junk that just seems to create so much division in the world. So I, I think that coming to that place of long answer to a short question, but coming to that place of just knowing, um, knowing what the scriptures are, are asking of us, that the scriptures yeah. are just really asking, who do you say that I am? God, you know, Jesus, you know, he didn't, he, people asked him like hundreds of questions. He clearly answered maybe like two. <laughs> so <laughs> he's not uh, super, he or, doesn't seem super interested in giving yeah. us a book that just is like, here's all the answers and here's all the clarity. I was just thinking like Martin Luther, he didn't know uh-huh. that he was reforming the church. He just thought, let's just give everybody the Bible and that way we can all kind of agree and come to unity. And like mm-hmm. exactly the opposite happened. So. Yeah. But yeah, it's funny. Like it's just, you read Jesus, you read the gospels and like, I'm using a percentage just to, you know, get my point across. I don't know what the actual percentage is, all you fact checkers out there, but 99% of the time Jesus is using, um, they ask him a question and he tells a story. They ask him a question <laughs> and he tells a story. Once upon so, a time, a certain man had two sons. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's like, he, he's, he's behaving like an octogenarian, but he's 30 years old, you know, so... <laughs> Um, which is my which is my goal in life uh students in my classes will probably probably tell you that like well this dude ever that's a huge that's a huge point because what i think it's mark's gospel that says that jesus taught in parables and without a parable he did not teach yeah you know it's like it's like he never taught without telling a story so i like to say the future belongs to the storytellers you know yeah for sure about the ability you know to the, the the um friend of mine used to say that the shortest distance between the head and the heart is a story. So yeah. somehow getting out of our, out of our, uh, our own intellectual perception of understanding and getting down into the place where it catches and captures the core of your being. It's, it's all in story. Everything in the, to me, everything in the Bible is a story. Revelation yeah. is a story. You know, it's, it's, it's a play actually. Mm-hmm. Revelation is just a play put on by heaven for John which yeah. is why, you know, about four or five times in, in the story of Revelation, they have to yell cut. And then somebody has to explain to John what's going on because he's having like a really inappropriate emotional reaction to it. Like, <laughs> you know, we look at that and go, oh, now how big is that beast? And we're like, no, no, it's a spirit. It's a story. It's a, it, yeah. So. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Um, well, and I've been like digging, digging deep, getting really into like what the ancient, Hebrew culture was like, you know, mm-hmm. it's like been one of the things I've been nerding out about the last six months or so, but in story, like they were a culture. So not only is story important and they're telling stories, but they're like a culture that prided themselves on telling stories. 
Yeah. So it's like this, I don't know, just blows me away. Like the more, the more I sit with it and I'm like, Jesus is telling these stories that are loaded that we still sit with today and they still breathe and are, are active. But then he understood his culture so well. Right. That he was like a storyteller among storytellers in a culture that told stories. And I don't know, I just trying to wrap my head around that is just so, but then you apply it to the day as like, what are we really obsessed with? Like, what are, what do we do in our free time? Right. We're watching Netflix or whatever. Well, we're, (laughs) we're looking for some type of story, even, even like news media we're um, and whatever side of the line you fall of in a time where there's a lot of division and stuff, but what are you really doing? You're looking for a story and you're looking for a place where you see yourself in that story. And I think people are looking for their place in a story but then it's like, oh, I see myself over here in this story. You're separate from my story. But the reality is like, bro, we're all in the same story right now together. Right. Um, you know, and, and maybe this is something I've never really articulated. But, you know, in Deuteronomy, when it says when you, you know, as you stand, as you lie down and walk along the way, um, you know, you open your mouth and you speak, you teach, you, you repeat, rehearse the works of God. It's, it's to never lose sight of the wonders yeah. of God. That's really, the, I mean, the, the whole, the whole foundation of the story. I think in Acts chapter two, one of the things that, that happens when the Holy Spirit is poured out, it says they were speaking in unknown tongues. Each one of them heard them all speak the wonderful works of God. It's almost like the Holy Spirit coming upon the church in Acts chapter two, it re- rekindled the wonder of, yeah, of, yeah. The, of, the, of the wonders of God. And they just start, what are they doing in time? They're, they're, they're speaking out the wonderful works of God. They're going back to like the, it's almost like the Holy Spirit's like bursting out within them generations of stories of the wonder of God that, that maybe hadn't been told in a long time. I mean, who knows? Um, you know, I, I did something, Matt, during uh, COVID shut down and all that, <laughs> that I'd never done before. And that is, I decided to read the works of Flavius Josephus, you know, which is, you know, about yay thick and single yeah. spaced and super small font. Double really columns. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Hard to read. And, um, and if you ever read the, the section that talks about the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 and Josephus, who's of course has to answer to, to the emperor, he's going to, you know, He's going to uh, he's going to die. I mean, he's like you know somewhat well known for his reporting, the kind of Walter Cronkite of his day, right? Yeah. So he's he's uh, and and he records like the last the last months of Jerusalem before the siege, when Jerusalem is surrounded by armies, and he and he starts talking about how um, there's a a flaming comet in the shape of a sword hanging in in the air in the sky, stationary in the sky over Jerusalem for the space of a year. Wow. which is sword looks like a cross, you know? So essentially mm-hmm. God puts a flaming cross in the sky, just hangs there, but he calls it a comet in the shape of a sword. And then how the Roman soldiers saw chariots literally riding on the clouds encircling Jerusalem, but the people don't seem to care or notice, even though they noticed it, they didn't, they didn't care. And then here's the part that got me. I, I, I never learned this in seminary, Bible college or anything. Never, had never read this before, and I don't know why I'd never heard this before, because this is the craziest thing I think I've ever heard in terms of, you know, extra biblical information. 
Um, he says, as the priests were leading the heifer into the temple for the, it's like the final sacrifice for the people, right? Yeah. He says, and behold, the heifer gave birth to a lamb. Wow. You have freaked me out. I was like, wait, I'd go back and look at that and like underline it. Now I'm getting the internet out. I'm Googling. I'm like, what, where did this come from? Yeah. So when this happens, then it says the Eastern gate of the temple opened on its own. It took 20 men to open and close this thing. Suddenly the thing just throws open on its own. There's all kinds of other crazy, there are like seven or eight supernatural crazy things going on. But here's what Josephus records. He, he kind of steps out of his, you know, usual just objective reporting. And he makes an observation that's sort of uncharacteristic for him, but what he was seeing must have shocked him so much. It wasn't the wonders that he was seeing that was shocking him. It was the priest's response, the religious people's response. And, And he says, in all of these things, as all of these things were happening, the priest simply went about their ministerial duties as if it wasn't even going on. Wow. And to me, that's that is the danger of losing the wonder of the works of God that have been passed down to us. The, the wonder of story, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, it can never be something where life becomes such a, a routine that God could show up and birth a lamb out of a heifer. And we just like, yeah, whatever. You know, it's like, I mean, how do you get to that place? You lose the wonder of of story. Um, I was reading in, in uh, Gideon's story in Judges 6 the other day when the angel of the Lord comes to Gideon and says, the Lord's with you, mighty man of valor. And Gideon's response is so typical of humanity. Gideon goes, yeah, where are the miracles? And why are all these bad things happening? <laughs> like those two things. I'm like, yeah, yeah. I'm like, oh my gosh, that's exactly what people say today. It's like when you try to, you know, share about the Lord, they're like, yeah, so what, where are the miracles? How come all this bad stuff's going on? I'm like, yeah. Gideon asked the same question thousands of years ago. So, yeah, we, wow. we just, we haven't come a long ways, but I think we devolve as people when we lose the wonder of story. Yeah, for sure. That was fun to articulate. Yeah. Thanks for giving me the chance Def- to do that. I never actually said that. Definitely. Story. I just took like a page of notes over that. Um, read, so read that thing about Josephus and the heifer, man. Yeah, that, for, I got I got to look that up. Yeah, I've been reading um, Eusebius, History of the Christian Church, oh, um, going through that, and that blows me. But now it's just like since I'm on this, I get on kicks, you know. I'll get mm-hmm. like into a historical period, and I'll just go, and then I'll get into a certain like genre of fiction, and I'll just go. Right now, it's just like I'm into like a lot of myth. Uh-huh. And like um, church history and kind of right. the the interplay between uh, the mythologies that we're developing in like the Greek and the Roman culture and like all of that and how it intertwines and vice versa with the history of the Christian church. But I love that. Yeah. I just was, I love Eusebius's history love, of the church. Yeah. And I just was reading like this massive series on the, on the, on the fall of the, the Roman empire. And I saw something in it. I'd never seen before where it was a common, um, a common phrase in the Roman empire uh, from the time of Christ, you know, to the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 was, was this phrase known as the sting of death, which I never knew. Of course. Yeah. 
the the sting of death was the punishment that you could expect after death. It wasn't death itself. It wasn't like that the loss that comes from a death as we think of it. You know, we think mm-hmm. of the sting of death as somebody dies and it hurts. Yeah. That's the sting of death for us. For the Romans who coined the phrase, the sting of death was the was the and you probably read this, but the but the uh, the the idea that after death you got the hammer coming at you, you know. Mm-hmm. And so when you know when Paul says, "Oh, death, where's your sting?" He's basically saying, you know, because of what Christ has done, there's no hammer that's mm-hmm. coming after you after death. You, you death, the sting of death has been dealt with in Christ. Yeah, uh, and I, you know, so if we don't understand that history, like we're not going to get that out of the Bible. You know, we see these phrases and we apply them into an English, you know, English language, and we, you know, superimpose them over a Western world. But when you start reading the cultures of of the Jews and the cultures of the Romans and, and the things that were a big deal in Jesus day, suddenly these terms that come out start to go, Whoa, I heard one the other day that I'd never, never heard before from a Greek lady. She says to me, she goes, uh, she says, you ever studied the the term antichrist? I'm like, you know, yeah, sort of like, in, you know, as far as like um, uh, end time teachers, you know, talk about, it. she says, no, you ever like look up, the Greek definition of anti in antichrist from the new Testament. I said, actually I hadn't, I felt kind of embarrassed that I hadn't. She said, what do you think anti means? I said, well, it means what opposed to, right. And she goes, no, it doesn't. She goes, I thought, well, anti seems pretty obvious opposed to, and she goes, but not, she goes, that's the, that's the English, you know, translation of the word and it's accurate. She goes, but it doesn't mean opposed to in that Mm -hmm. sense. She says, it just means instead of, and she's wow. like, it's not like the Antichrist spirit is violently opposed to the things of God in Christ. Antichrist spirit might say, you know, yeah, I believe in Christ, but I'm going to focus on something else for just a second. So I'm just going to set him aside. In other words, anything that is instead of Christ is the Antichrist, Antichrist. spirit, wow. which is probably why you find the Antichrist in church so often. Yeah. Um, or the Antichrist I, spirit, at least. Yeah, it's just we're gonna we're gonna stop focusing on Christ and focus on politics and focus on mm-hmm. yeah, yeah yeah focus on whatever whatever that issue is and that would be <laughs> interesting. It's interesting because I did a I did a podcast on like six 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 the mark of the beast yeah and my contention in that was like look six was symbolic in the Hebrew culture it was just the number of like incompleteness. And so they believed man was incomplete and then you triple it. It's just like, you're totally incomplete and flawed. It's not like this weird occult demon rising up from the depths depths (laughs) to come swallow you. It's just like, no, the mark of the beast, you know, and then I connected it to like, look, you have a survival instinct. It's hardwired into you. It's your animal, like your animal nature. Like if you got to run away from a tiger or whatever. um, Yeah. Like that will absolutely accurate. I mean, I mean, it's an accurate application. Like that'll kick in, man. But but you're not supposed to be living like an animal your whole life. That's that's that was my kind of hey. This is the mark of the beast. It's your animal. Yeah. Well, you know, in in um, in Revelation when they talk about the number of the beast, it says Mm -hmm. you know let every man know. In other words, it can be known. Let you know. Let him know and let him understand. So. there's a number of ciphers that are uh, present in, in Hebrew literature, but the Gematria cipher, uh, one of the most commonly used, I think, and would have been in use in John's day, 
um, spells out uh, 666 as Neron Caesar, which is Nero Caesar. So yeah. the beast of John's day was Nero Caesar, which was in his future, which is in our past. So, you know, um, you can use any number of ciphers to come up with, you know, or any of the dinosaur or Barack Obama or whatever people come up with. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, no, it's, I mean, when I look, at least, you know, at least as I learned it, it's like, Oh, that's Neron Gizar. That's, that's Nero Caesar. He's, he's totally, he's totally calling out, you know, the fact that the beast by nature, you know, as a spirit has been aligned with in this leader and in this person, you know, and, and all that stuff in revelation is a, it's all spiritual. Antichrist is a spirit. The, yeah. the beast is a spirit. Uh, to me, I did a 10 hour study on the book of revelation um, over, over the COVID season uh, for a small group of people. And then we just made it available on our website. But uh, w- when I look at the book of revelation, I see it as a handbook of how to walk in victory in every single generation, Yeah, you know, victory over darkness. You know, how, how do you enforce the victory of the cross in every single generation? Because literally every generation could find signs within their generation that would point to their generation as the generation of the last days. And yeah. um, so that's awesome. I'm not and coming at it from a super futuristic perspective, you know? No, that's anyway. good. Oh, and then in the beginning of the letter, I guess you would call it a letter or the vision. Um, mm-hmm. He has instructions to seven churches and just something yeah. that popped out to me when I was reading through it a month or two ago. Um, it's almost like it's a letter. Here are seven common problems you might face yeah. when leading a group of people walking this thing out. And so it's almost like a rough guide to it's like a leadership instruction manual. Here are seven right. of the most common problems you might face if you're walking with Christ with people and trying to figure this thing out, I don't yes. know. This is something that stuck out to me. Which is why I think most, most, most people don't find any problem preaching out of revelation one through five. Yeah. One through three, maybe once you get past chapter five, it starts getting a little crazy. Yeah. For sure, man. Um, so, um, you said something I was listening to the, um, Reckless Grace podcast a couple of days ago, and you said something on it was either the first or second episode. You said something about uh, sacred cow barbecue, <laughs> <laughs> and you said I like to cook. <laughs> so you said I'm going to barbecue some sacred cows. So this is you know more of you telling stories and things like that, but just something I was curious, and we might have already covered it in the conversation. But if you had to pick one sacred cow to barbecue and you could only pick one. What, what sacred cow are you, you putting down on the grill and inviting people over for y'all to enjoy that feast? Distance and separation. Distance and separation. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That's to me, that changed. That was the biggest thing that changed everything for me, you know, years ago. Um, somebody asked me, um, this mutual friend of ours, Danny Orser, if you remember, Danny says, yeah. hey, what do you think's the most mind-melting verse Dana. in the whole Bible? Yeah, crazy, crazy brother. Love that guy. And he's, he says, what's the most mind-melting verse you've ever read in the Bible? You're sitting in a little restaurant that I own, a little coffee shop that I owned years ago. I'm just making small talk and whatever. 
And it was, it was really kind of a, a catalytic question for me. It, it, for him, it was just kind of a throwaway moment just to, you know, uh, just to talk scripture. But it, it literally took me months to answer that question. I mean, I think I gave him something in the moment, but then I yeah. kind of went back to the scripture and I thought if I was going to settle on one verse that undoes me and, and, and I can't wrap my mind around it and kind of feel like I never will, but I, I'm going to spend eternity trying uh, I came, I came to the conclusion for me, it was John fourteen twenty, where Jesus says in that day, you will know I am in the father and you are in me and I am in you. And really it was that last, that last part of the equation, that last, I am in you part that changed everything because I could, I could believe that, uh, I knew that Jesus and the father were one. I get that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I knew that, uh, I was in Maybe I was in him, but to me, it was like a drop of water in the ocean. I sort of assimilated into the collective and, and, and now it's no longer I that lives, but Christ. And so my life doesn't matter, but it was that last part. And I am in you, which means I don't disappear in this equation, but the union is still relevant. And um, that was the part where, and this, of course, mutual friends of ours would, were preaching so much at the time. No distance, no separation. Mm-hmm. I remember the first time I, I heard that phrase, no distance, no separation. And it, you know, it, it hit my spirit, I would say, so with so much life that it was like taking a bite of something that was like, wow, that was great. I wonder if I take another bite, is it going to be just as good? And it yeah. was, and it was, and it was. And it was, so that phrase, no distance, no separation goes through my mind hundreds of times a day. It's it like plays on loop in my head, and uh, uh, yeah, I, I I feel like that four word phrase, no distance, no separation, is the is the sound and language that is embedded in the deepest part of my blood, my being, because that that union aspect of us and. And God, you're one with God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he did that. That reality changes everything. And uh, so now I recognize, to me, that's new covenant. That's just Paul's new covenant yeah. reality. All 13 letters that Paul wrote were just enamored with union. And um, and everywhere I go, when I talk to people, the languaging of distance and separation is glaring to me. But yeah. if 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 I don't, if I don't recognize that, then it's real easy to get into arguments with people. Um, you know, oh, you're wrong about this. You're wrong about it. No, that's not it. I recognize where where I was for so long was striving to get closer to a God that had taken up residence within me, and I knew that philosophically and con- you know as a concept, but experiencing the reality of that intimacy. I had to let myself believe it. You know, I had to actually come to the place where I go by faith. I, I think this is true. And uh, so that's what I challenge people to do everywhere I go is just to believe, you know, repent, and believe the gospel is to repent and believe that you're one with God in Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he did that. First Corinthians one thirty by his doing, you are in, in Christ Jesus. Once people come to an awareness of that, it, it changes everything. I was um, I was in a meeting here in uh, in Minnesota this past couple of weeks where this guy says uh, uh, 
we were talking about, you know, soteriology and how a person gets saved. And he goes, uh, he'd been in church, you know, like his whole life and, uh, you know, heard sermons and all this stuff and, and saw what the church said you had to do in order to be saved. And so of course it's your work that ends up saving you somehow. And he said, one day he says, I'm in a Bible studies. Actually, he says, I was, I was in a Bible study with your dad and he was just talking about the goodness of God and what Jesus had done. And he said, and all of the sudden something clicked. It's like my heart and my mind aligned for the first time with, with, with what, the Bible said about God that seemed too good to be true that I couldn't believe in what Christ had accomplished. And he said, before I could even like take a breath, I knew it like I'm, I'm, wow. I'm in, like I'm in. Yeah. And he goes, I walked away from there and he goes, my brother says to me something different about you. And he goes, um, I'm, I'm, I'm saved. And he says, what'd you do? He said, I didn't do anything. I didn't do anything. I just, yeah. He was just sitting in a meeting and suddenly believed the gospel. And from that point on, has been confessing Christ and the, the work of Christ. You know, you know, Matt, if you talk about, if you talk about um, you know, going back like to the early fathers, first three centuries of Christianity, and you read what they said about Jesus, especially in regards to, to his work, uh, his saving grace to save them, even all the way up to the Nicene Creed, you know, uh, people would talk pretty much solely about what Christ had done. Yeah, very little human effort um, before salvation. Tons of human work, sacrificial compassion laid down after or as a result of what Christ had done. Um, so it, it always seems to begin with Jesus. But these days, two thousand years after the cross, if I ask people how'd you get saved, the answer usually, most always, begins with the word "I." Mm-hmm. I did. I prayed. I you know all that. So somewhere in the last two thousand years. The, the gospel has gone from what Christ did to what we do. Yeah. And, uh, and that would be the sacred cow. I'd love to just barbecue once and for all There you go. Get back to the work of Christ and, and, and resting in, in the reality of the finished work of the cross and letting, letting the good news of that intimate communion be so motivating that the grace of that, 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 the grace of that moment of while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us becomes the motivating factor for everything we do in evangelism, missions and all that stuff that, um, yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's, that's the sacred cow for me. Distance and separation. That's awesome. Distance and separation. And I mean, um, I think one thing, so our mutual friend, Andre, one thing he yeah. says a lot that, I think really encapsulates that whole idea. And like one phrase, he was like with Christ, it was no longer you sacrificing for God. It was God sacrificing for you. Oh my goodness. I was thinking um, about thinking about actually having this conversation just yesterday with somebody um, in an airport uh, where John the Baptist baptizing and he sees Jesus coming over the hill and it, it caught my just attention. And I wonder if John knew what he was saying when he said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yeah. Because you think about that, it went against everything that they would have believed as Jews. Like it, behold the lamb, lamb is sacrifice. Only mm-hmm. sinner sacrifice. God's not a sinner. Why is God sacrificing a lamb? And if God's sacrificing a lamb, he's not going to sacrifice a person because God doesn't believe in human sacrifice unless 
God is going to be the sacrifice himself that lays down his own life. Because he, Jesus said, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down on my, on my own. So when John sees Jesus, he's literally saying, everybody look, this is the sacrifice of God himself. Yes. Not that God wow. is offering, but that God is giving him, him God was in Christ, right? So mm-hmm. this is the sacrifice. This is the sacrificial lamb of God himself. And the result of this is that it takes away the sin of the cosmos, the, the distance and separation of the cosmos. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, it's a, it's a radically mind blowing thought, yeah. you know, that, that John would even, you know, I, I wonder if he, if he was even shocked at the words that spilled out of his mouth you know, almost like he just caught this overflow of, of heaven's revelation and mm-hmm. then sound comes out that blows his own mind. Yeah. Yeah. And he's, it's one of those moments like, what did I just say? Right. Like, <laughs> what does this even mean? I just looked at you my know? cousin and I just told everybody that he's God and that God <laughs> is going to be sacrificing himself for us. Yeah. Which in, is in this, in this body right here, which is total blasphemy in our, <laughs> in our culture, the culture that they're living in. Like that's total blasphemy. And, but we're using the language the languaging and the patterning of our culture, but we're flipping it on its head and saying like, Oh, Hey, this stuff we've been doing for 2000 years. Um, it's no good. Here's what's about to, here's what's about to go down. I was Um, saying this to to this this guy the other day. And he says to me, and he's shaking his head like this. He goes, man, he says, if the blood of a goat could take away the sin of an entire nation for a whole year under an old covenant, what did the blood of the lamb, the sacrifice of the lamb of God, God himself as the sacrificial lamb do? So what, what did that even accomplish? If a, if a goat could, I mean, he's like, come on. <laughs> that's just, yeah. that's just crazy. You know, like when a priest and a, you know, a priest is hanging out in the temple, here comes a sinner carrying a lamb, you know, the sinners coming to sacrifice this lamb, you know, for his sin, he hands the lamb over to the priest. The priest doesn't inspect the sinner. He inspects the lamb because it's the quality of the lamb that determines the measure of grace released in the moment. <laughs> you take that principle and you bring it to the new covenant and you realize, oh my goodness, if we, if we, if we don't regard the, the power of what Christ accomplished on the cross as having the capacity, the ability and the all-sufficiency to eradicate the sin of the cosmos. You know, what, what kind of a gospel are we preaching? Yeah. It has to end up becoming a gospel of our own works. If, if we fail to see the finished work, then we have to create our own. Mm-hmm. We, you know, that, that's, that's such a, a pit of, of, of destruction. You know, it's like, oh, and climbing out of that religion is, you know, for a lot of people, I think it's, it's, a, it's a long process. And I feel like you know, reaching down into that and like, let's just pull people out. Because, man, I, I lived there. I lived even as a yeah. pastor. I lived there for years. And uh, well, and I know kind of in my walk, like I got this revelation or more like it came to me, whatever. God, God put me in the situation, circumstances, whatever, and hit me with that revelation. And I experienced it. But it's been like 10 years and I'm still walking through deconstructing religious programming that I had previously 
from that. Um, it's almost like, you know, like you have a, you have a, like a victim who has like a traumatic wound and they pack it full of gauze. Yeah. They say stuff the wound full of gauze. It's like for 10 years, God's just been pulling that gauze out. Yeah. That's what it kind of, what it feels like for me, at least it's like, you know, this intellectually you've experienced it, but there's still all these little religious things you want to attach and you have to let me breathe on those. You have to let me talk to you and tell you, 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 you are good enough. Um, yeah. You don't have to be so harsh on yourself. And then with me, it's like when I'm, when I'm harsh, harsh and self-critical and I hold myself to some weird standard that um, I'm not even sure whose standard it is. I start to hold other people to that standard. Yeah. And yeah. then I think in a sense, we do that in a religious way, you know, with our own right. works. Yeah. When we gauge our spirituality or our intimacy with God, when we gauge our relationship with God or all that by, by our own works, then we will use that standard of our own works to judge the, uh, the, the relationship that other people have with God. Yeah. And I, Leif Hetland says so beautifully, he says, you know, I've been on a lot of ships in my life, you know, um, leadership, discipleship, mentorship he says they've, they've all sunk at some point he goes the one ship that stays afloat no matter what is sonship nice and, uh, yeah uh, sonship it's good it's good to be on the sonship oh uh, no um, I, I, I live there i like that yeah it's a good one <laughs> um but getting getting kind of it seems like a lot of our conversation which is is great has been um kind of thematically centered around identity Mm -hmm. which you're um, I would consider you like you're like the Babe Ruth. You're like the Michael Jordan of teaching on identity. I think. <laughs> wow. Right. <laughs> right. And it's awesome. Thank yeah. you. Thank you. But so yeah. it's, it's great. It's good. It's a good times. Um, Cause we've been talking about identity so much with like, to me, you're the OG of identity. Oh, um, but um, me and the other I saw a meme the other day that had a picture of Scottie Pippen and Michael Jordan sitting <laughs> together. And Scotty says, you know, they say LeBron set a record for the most games or the most points scored in, in a game seven, uh, in game seven, uh, the finals. And, and uh, Jordan turns to Pippen and goes, what's game seven? <laughs> that's great. Oh, that's a good time. I've watched the last dance, I think five times. Um, amazing. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's just good. There's so mm. many nuggets and, you know, mm. that's, that's part of what I do in my day job. So there's <laughs> one, I love it just for the nostalgia quality, but it's just like, there's all these little bitty lessons from a coaching perspective, from a leadership perspective, just from a, how you approach things perspective that are just all woven within there. It's, but it's great. Yeah. Um, uh, but uh, I guess last thing, we had a few more minutes before I run out of recording time. Um, kind of centered around identity. Let's riff on this a little bit. So how does how we see ourselves affect how we see God? Well, if I can see him clearly, then I can define, I can see myself defined in how I see him. You know, like I was saying earlier, if I, if I, if I can behold him and see who he is, 
then I realize made in his image and likeness it is it is his divine nature that I'm a partaker of that defines who I am, um, which which forces me to break the lies and labels off my life. Yeah, um, that that I believed about myself, which is just letting go. It's not a striving; it's a surrender. It's just letting go of all the lies and the labels I believed. Um, you know, God told Jeremiah, He said, "I knew you before I formed you," which means you could be known before you knew you could be known. So then I asked the question, what did he know? Because mm-hmm. what he knew, what he has always known is who I really am. And so as far as I can see, I have one assignment in this life. And that is to find out what God believes about me and then and then agree with that. Wow. I believe some amazing things I think about all of us. I mean, as David said in Psalm 139, you know, how precious are your thoughts to me, O God, and how vast is the sum of them. If I were to count them, they would outnumber the sand. And um, one one day, just living here in Florida, you know, because this whole this whole state is just a giant sandbar. I went out and just took a pinch of sand. I put it here on my dining room table, and I started just saying, "How many how many grains of sand are in one pinch?" Right. And so it took like the prong of a fork, and I'm like, or just like counting these things out. And I got to 200. I mean, it is how bored I was, you know, on that day. I got to 200, and I barely made a dent in that pinch of sand. And, and I suddenly had this, I just put the fork down and sat there for a second. I had this moment where I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, you know, let's not even deal with this pinch of sand. If you could just believe 10 grains of sand worth what I believe about you, it would change the way you see yourself and everybody else around you. And um, I said, that's it. Not even the state of Florida, not the Sahara Desert worth. Just give me 10 grains of sand, break off 10 lies and replace them with 10 truths of what God believes about me. So, you know, one of them is, is the reality that if an eternal God thought you up um, in his heart and his mind uh, before you ever had the chance to get around to impressing him or disappointing him, and that means he made up his mind about us and he's not waiting to watch our behavior to see how he's going to feel about us. Um, you know, that leads into another one. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. The Bible says um, angels, demons, principalities, powers, life, death, things, present things to come, height, depth, any created thing. He says, that's kind of the, the, the final straw in the whole deal. No created thing can separate you from the love of God. Well, you're created, mm. and so is hell. So <laughs> if no created thing can separate you from the love of God, I don't know what we do with that. Yeah. Um, the only thing can separate you from the love of God would be God himself. And, and so that comes all the way full circle back to the question, who do you say that I am? Who do we yeah. believe he is? Wow. Moses goes to the mountain one day to talk to God. And um, I think it's visit number three he has with God. And he says, show me your glory. And God says, I'm going to make all my goodness to pass before you. So the glory of God is the goodness of God on display. And, and then God goes on further to define that goodness where he says, means I'm going to have mercy on who I'm going to have mercy. I'll be gracious to who I'll be gracious to. In other words, I can, I can be as kind as I want to be. Nobody, nobody else defines how much love I can give. Nobody else gets to define for me how much kindness I release over this world. I'll forgive whoever I want to forgive. I'll give grace to whoever I want to give it to. And so when Jesus says in John 20, 23, um, uh, he breathes on the disciples, says, receive the Holy Spirit, and then says, whoever sins, you forgive, they're forgiven. You know, I, I mean, that that, yeah. that was the whole thing of the, the book, Reckless Grace, is I think it's Jesus saying, all right, now, now here's the test. Why don't you guys go forgive people like I do? 
Yeah. Well, grace, go give grace away the way you think I do. And that's really what he was saying. Yeah. It's like, here you go. Gloves are off. You guys know there's no rules about this thing. You go give grace. And, and uh, you know, as the father sent me, I send you as he is. So are we in this world? You go give grace away just like I do. And, and the way you give grace will demonstrate who you think I am. And so wow. <laughs> that's why, that's why I lost all my judgment, Matt. That's why I lost all of my, um, all of my sense of judgment, condemn, condemnation for any person. You know, it's like, it's like, a, it's like Peter in Acts chapter 10 and 11, Peter comes to Cornelius's house and he says, uh, God has shown me that I am to call no man unholy or unclean. Okay. Wow. Well, what options does that leave me? That means I got to look at people and go holy and clean. Mm-hmm. I am literally forbidden from calling anybody unholy or unclean. And that means I can't, I can't look at what they do and judge them based upon what they do. Well, if I can't do that, it, then I, I, I don't think God does either. I think yeah. God says, he says to us, love your enemies. Well, what do we think he's doing with his? Demanding <laughs> us of something of us that he's not willing to do mm. himself. So, you know, I mean, it just, it all points to, to me, this, this unfolding reality that the gospel is consistently better news than we ever thought. Yeah. And, uh, so my, I, I've kind of gone through a little deconstruction as well, but mm-hmm. every decon, moment of deconstruction has been replaced by a reconstruction of a greater goodness that I, that I never knew possible. And it, it just makes me happier and happier all the time. So wow. I feel like I'm just getting gladder and gladder day by day. That's great. Oh, well, that's, um, like I said, I've got about three pages of notes now, um, which, which I love. So I'm gonna have to go back and play this because there's just so many nuggets. I want to go back and, and and listen to this too. Yeah, I am too. And what I like too, is I got a lot of young men listening who've kind of, they're dipping their toes into the edge of the finished work pool, so Mm -hmm. to speak. And so now you're, you're, they're going to listen to this and they're going to hear it. And you're just like picking them up and throwing them, throwing them into the deep end. Here you go. Mm. Uh, so that's real good. Um, anything, yeah, just tell us a little bit about where we can find you, where we can, where we can connect with you, what you got going on and we'll wrap this up. Yeah. 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 I can give one last thought since you just mentioned me, you got uh, some people listening to this that, go might, ahead. that might have a, might have a, you know, dipping their toes in the finished work pool. Um, a lot of the, a lot of the fruit of the finished work message uh, that I've that I've watched, um, and even been a part of preaching, has been sort of a complacent apathy as people kind of get off the hamster mm-hmm. wheel of religious effort, and um, and so uh, some time ago I felt like the Lord said, um, you know, the finished work, uh, the finished work of the cross became the access point into a new covenant reality where the greater works are that I told you were possible. In other words, grace suddenly um, became both a point of rest and a motivator at the same time. I was suddenly motivated on a whole other level, whereas I used to preach a gospel that was based upon like, you know, you got to make just one decision where you're going to spend eternity. Um, It was a destination based message. Uh, I, I feel like the finished work of the cross has now given me a whole exploding, unending uh, uh, freshness to evangelism. And that is, I want people to know what God did, what Christ did. And I don't want people to walk in blindness to who they are 
for a day in their life. Uh, to, to see the reality of who Christ says we are right now is to draw people into a, 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 we're living invitations to be ambassadors of Christ for people to awaken to their reconciled union with God. And in that reconciled union, find a place of rest for their soul and, and, and a place of uh, grace to move and motivate their spirit to go out and pursue the things that perhaps weren't previously available. So all that to say, I feel like I evangelize now more than ever, pray for the sick now more than ever. I'm doing more than I ever did before, but it's not a doing that's based on uh, me being the fuel for my own life to try to impress God. It's simply lived out of gratitude. So now I have this supernatural energy and strength that I'm thinking, my goodness, where'd this come from? I realize now he's the fuel. On the other side of the cross, there's this finished work reality where you know, my sharing the gospel with people isn't a duty. It's an absolute pleasure. It's, it's, it's like breathing. It's the identity that, that we carry. So, you know, just, to, you know, never to allow the finished work to draw us into a place of, well, it's all done. So there's nothing left to do Yeah, because it's all done. There's things I can now do that I could not do before. Um, it, it qualifies me to do the things I did not think I was worthy to do. Now I'm made worthy, righteous, pure, holy, because of what Christ did, that qualifies me to do what I never could do before. So, um, so I see more. We see more miracles happen. We see more uh, people come to Christ. It's I mean, it's a fast, fascinating, wonderful, um, wonderful world. Anyway, wow. So anybody who's listening to this, like, just let the finished work of the cross just open the door to the kingdom. You know, uh, yeah. Anyway. Um, yeah, people can go to billvanderbush.com. Uh, that's a good place to go. You can find all the podcasts and resources and stuff there. Tons of videos on YouTube. Every time I preach somewhere, people post something. So there's endless hours and stuff on YouTube. There's a, um, there's a course I did some years ago called the Quantum Preaching Masterclass. It was a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek thing when we started it, but it's really taken off. And we have uh, hundreds of people that have gone through it. And it's a public speaking course for those who really just want to be better communicators of the authenticity of the gospel. And uh, it's 30 lessons and it's an online thing. So you can go to billvanderbush.com. There's a link up there that says quantum preaching masterclass. So if you have a call of God in your life to proclaim, declare the gospel, and you know, that's something that you're really called to do. Uh, this is a, this is a good tool to kind of walk you through uh, some processes of breaking off some bad habits and, and uh, getting some good ones in your life. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of things out there. The revelation studies out there. There's a 24 hour teaching on identity called project 24. That's fun. Literally 24 hours. So, uh, uh, there's a, there's a thing called walk into the power and the presence of the Holy spirit. It's a 12 hour teaching on spiritual joy fair, which I think is a term that either you came up with or Chris Hammond or some of those guys came up with. We were, yeah, we were throwing that around when we all lived in that house together. I don't remember who. I don't remember, yeah, the bliss mission. I don't remember who came up with it. But we said it's not someone at some point said it's not warfare, it's joy fair. And then it just it it got out there into the into the cosmos. It's um, great. It's yeah. great. I've run with that like crazy and it's 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 kind of caught fire all over the place. So that's awesome. I've never done a spiritual joy fair conference, but I think I think I'm I'm on the edge. I want to pull the trigger on that one of these days. So, uh, yeah. Anyway, there's a lot of stuff out there. Just go to BillVanderbush.com, find us on Facebook, Instagram, and we document our travels and the things that God's doing. And we just, we document us having fun doing life and living life. Cause I think one of the greatest evangelistic tools on earth is, 
you know, children of, of God enjoying life. Amen. <laughs> oh, well, Bill, thanks for coming on. I'm going to, I'm going to stop it now and we can chat. All right.